0: Tonight, we're looking at the last chapter, or beginning to look at the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Our text is the one just read from Matthew 7. And we'll make three points here. Judging others, that's in verses 1 and 2. Correcting brothers, in verses 3 through 5. And then sharing with the hostile, in verse 6. Judging others, correcting brothers, sharing with the hostile. First then, judging others. This text, of course, is famous, often misused and taken out of context. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, I think any sober listener to the the Sermon on the Mount to this point really should not be in any mood to judge anybody. Anybody who's been listening to Jesus' teaching at this point should not feel much like judging. And yet, human nature being what it is, it turns out that the demands for righteousness, for righteous living, that the sermon places on us all as disciples, those very demands can and do lead to a judgmental spirit. We've seen this before in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is concerned that it is Christian piety itself, which is has, because of human nature, this ability to become the breeding ground for our own self-righteousness and pride and hypocrisy. And our Lord knows that, right? He knows that what he has said, while it should break us and lead us to not desire to judge anyone, can in fact produce a judgmental spirit. So there's this injunction. So let's begin by saying what it's not. Uh, it's clear from the context, not to mention the whole of Scripture, that the text cannot mean, and, and Tolstoy, by the way, took it to mean this, it cannot mean that we cannot set up law courts to judge because judging is forbidden. Societies need laws and judges. Right, scripture not only acknowledges this, but it says that the law courts are divinely appointed. But an extreme reading of this text would be judging's forbidden, no police, no law. A second, judging cannot mean that we're to be blind, that we cease uh, sensing a difference between good and evil, that we lack discernment. Right? This is not judging in the sense of rightly discriminating or evaluating things. I mean, the text here in itself is a judgment against those who judge. Right? Even refraining from judgment is a form of discriminating judgment. There's no escaping evaluation and discernment. So in that sense, judgment is a, is a good and necessary thing. Jesus tells his disciples later in this gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, how to judge in the exercise of church discipline. He says later in the sermon that you can judge people by their fruits. In John chapter 7, he tells his disciples to judge righteously. So, what is in view here then is unfairly or unrighteously judging another. That's the main thing. And so the text is seeking to eliminate in us a fault finding critical spirit which is quick to condemn other people, to pronounce upon their guilt. This aspect of condemning is important here. It's brought out in the, in the parallel in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter six, Jesus' words are as follows. Parallel to our passage here in Matthew. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Second lesson uh, that I read here from Romans 14 has this same connection. Who are you to judge your brother? Who are you to condemn? So the person here is assuming, taking on, unrighteously, the role of God. They want to climb up on the bench... Right? They want to evaluate, but they want to condemn. They want to pronounce the sentence. They forget that they, too, are in the dock. Right? Such a one, the text says, will be judged. Right? Jesus says that. You will be judged. It's implied by God. Who's the one that's going to judge us? God. As uh, the, James says in his epistle, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but you, who are you to judge another? That's the sense of judge here. We just read it again, Romans 14. You then, why do you judge your brother, or why do you look down on your brother with contempt? For we will all stand, Paul continues, before the judgment seat of God. So the person here has forgotten something, namely, they're not God. God. They're not going to render any judgment, and they're going to give an account and themselves be judged. And we all slip into this. It's remarkable, but we, but we do it. And so people who feel the need to take the role of judge, they're impatient people. They're people who really don't trust the coming eschatological judgment. Right, that's why Paul connects these things, Jesus does, with the final judgment. There is one who is judge. He will sort out our tangles. He does not need anyone to assist him at the bench. And so verse two here expands on the judgment that those who judge in this way are going to receive. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So. The point here is that God is going to deal with this sort of judging person. This is a person who wants justice for others. Everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. This person should not expect mercy, then, at the judgment seat of Christ. That's Jesus' point here. His point is not, if you ignore the sins of other people, I'll ignore your sins at the final judgment. That's not the point. His point is, if you don't show mercy, then you're not going to receive any mercy. So there's a kind of reciprocity here by which God will deal with us as we have treated other people. If we live by the golden rule, which Jesus articulates just shortly after this text, then we'll be judged by the same generous standard. If we refuse to forgive other people, if we're narrow and censorious, fault-finding, then our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. Scripture is clear about that. Remember the the parable of the, the unforgiving servant in Matthew's Gospel. His condemnation stems from the fact that he had received mercy, but had not shown mercy to his fellow slave. And so James also says, judgment will be merciless, To the one who's shown no mercy. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And so, to judge like this is to lose sight that we are ourselves in the dock, as I said. We're objects of God's evaluative, searching judgment. And, And God will be gracious. He'll be gracious to the meek who realize that he alone is the judge. All right, so you can't judge before the time. There has to sort of be a deferral in human life. So that's judging others. The second point, which is closely related, I've called correcting brothers. It's really sort of a short parable illustrating the first point about judging. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So the one who's doing the judging here is not really concerned for their brother. Rather, there's often a kind of masked contempt for the other person. Under the mask of love, there really lies a kind of pettiness, a complete lack of proportion and I'll, I'll say that in a minute. I'll get to that in a minute. But for now, let me say this. Proportion in life and in responding to others matters. Like having big things big, medium things medium, small things small, inconsequential things inconsequential. That's a big part of life. <laughs> and dealing with people, getting this proportion right is important. And it, and it comes up in the way we respond to others. right? This person that Jesus is pointing out here, this one sees the small sins of other people as very much in need of correction, but is totally blind to their own much greater sins. And such is our nature that we're susceptible to this. And so these are people who operate with a hypocritical double standard. right? Justice for you and promiscuous mercy for me. Who hasn't done this, right? right? This is the type of person who sits in the sermon and thinks, so-and-so really needs to hear this sermon. Right, that's what this person does. They are always figuring out who's falling short and who really needs to hear this sermon. And under this hypocrisy lies a complete or at least, as Jesus would put it, at least a very substantial lack of self-awareness. Right? The, 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 the little parable Jesus tells is intentionally almost comedic and exaggerated, right? How preposterously unself-aware is the person? They have a plank sticking out of their eye. Like everyone else can see it except them, right? That's always the case it is when we're when we're lacking awareness. Right? So We can walk around with planks in our eyes and insist that we should be the eye surgeons for our brethren. I mean, that's why I chose that Old Testament lesson. David's response to the parable Nathan told him after his adultery and after his murder where the rich man steals and kills the poor man's little lamb, and there's David with this monstrous plank in his eye, and he pronounces the death sentence on the other guy. And of course, Nathan says, you're you're the man. And so Jesus continues here. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So again, this there's this is a total lack of self evaluation. Blind surgeons should not be eager to operate. But this person, this type of person is eager to operate. But this robust self awareness, right, it's difficult to obtain. It's very hard. After all, you know, the eye cannot see the eye. And we're really bad at seeing ourselves in full. Right? Your eye sees out, but your eye doesn't see the state of your eye. And so for selves, which look out at other people, to see themselves takes real labor. Right? It takes real work. And it's one of the functions of Holy Scripture. People have to sit under Holy Scripture. They have to hear it. They have to let it judge and correct and break and shape and change them. And that, that just... It doesn't happen often enough, I don't think. The the word of God, Hebrews tells us, is living and it's active. Right. And it's able to pierce to the division of joints and marrows, to your judgments and intents and thoughts of the heart. Right. And until that's happening, we're really not fit. To correct others. One, One way, I think here's a diagnostic test. A diagnostic test would be this. When's the last time you read Scripture and then told a friend or a spouse or a loved one, this text really shattered me. Right? This text really broke me. This text really convicted me. This text really showed me that I'm wrong or that I was blind. Often we read Scripture, we see what we want to see, we don't see what we don't want to see, we throw the stuff that's too hard over our shoulders or, we're just confirmed in the prejudices we brought to the text to begin with anyway. But that's not why Scripture exists. Remember, when the, the only Jesus who speaks to us is the Jesus of Revelation 1, right? That risen, transfigured Christ. That's, that's the Christ. And when he speaks to John, John hears this voice like thunder. And John turns to hear that voice. That's what the church does. It turns to hear that voice. And what he does when he, when he turns and he looks, he falls down dead. And then that one speaks. And only after that do we have anything to say to anybody or anything. So we need this towering conception of the word which, which puts us in the dock. And then when we get out of there, we're not going to be too eager To go around and operate. But anyway, Jesus continues. He says, you you hypocrite, which is a word which means mask wearer. In other words, a person that kind of hides themselves, not only from others, but from themselves. He says, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So notice, judgment is not forbidden But a fault-finding kind of arrogant judgment is, right? Jesus does say, do this and then you can get the speck out. But it's the brotherly, you know, correction of one who's dealt robustly with their own sins. It's a lot harder to yank a plank out of your eye and to stick with Jesus' metaphor than to just wipe a little speck out of somebody else's eye. So there's a good sort of proportion here, right? I don't know what the number would be, but a lot more time on your own eye and very little time on everybody else's eyes. So, there's a kind of brotherliness that's needed here, right? A sort of solidarity. We know we're sinners. And, And then, because we share a common frailty with one another, then we have a clear eye, Jesus says, and then we can... Address our brothers or sisters' sins. This is what Paul means in, in Galatians, where he says this brethren, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you too may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So true, true correction there is to be, but it's brotherly, it's sympathetic, and it's very costly. It's willing to carry the load of the other's struggles. This is another diagnostic test. If you're not willing to give up swaths of your time to help the other person with the thing that's stuck in their eye, then don't correct them about the thing stuck in their eye. Because you have to carry their burden with them. Sympathy. Solidarity. That changes the way we see the speck in someone else's eye, right? Because then we realize, that's part of my burden as the body of Christ to bear. And that requires a a rare combination of deep self-awareness and genuine unselfish concern for others. On both fronts, we all fall short. We are to seek to attain it. We're to attain to this, then you will see clearly. You notice that in the text? That's what we're trying to become. Then you will see clearly clearly. So the third point here is sharing with the hostile. Um, So I think the idea here is that in our love, in our generosity to others, which Jesus isn't trying to instill, right? He's trying to instill an open-handed generosity, free mercy, that sort of spirit throughout the Sermon on the Mount, actually. Here he's saying something of a cautious word. He's saying, but you still have to be discerning. Don't give... The dogs, what's sacred, don't throw your pearls to pigs. Right? And what is sacred and um, highly prized like pearls in, in Matthew's gospel and in the whole New Testament is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is talking here about giving out the gospel of the kingdom. Dogs and pigs, they're both unclean animals. They were metaphors even for the Gentiles in Jesus' day, but here they're stark images for whoever is hardened. Right For those who are, to take the pig metaphor, committed to their filth. For those who are unrepentantly hostile to the gospel. We all know people like this. And there are times when we are people like this. The text says, kind of surprisingly, there are people who you must not share the gospel with. As Proverbs 23.9 puts it, Do not speak to a fool for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. So there's a kind of um, evangelical culture that likes to count the number of converts they've made. But what can't be counted is the number of people they've turned off. That's on no ministry newsletter heading. Seven converts, 57 people turned off. What what can't be counted is the number of times they've allowed the holy things of God to be profaned. Notice this, right? Jesus is concerned that the holy gospel of the kingdom not be profaned. The profanation of the holy thing of God is more important than all human beings put together. And Jesus' saying is, don't treat it like it's some cheap, tawdry piece of candy that you're handing out. You can't count the number of times that the holy things of God have been profaned or despised or, in the language of the text, trampled under the feet of the hostile. Jesus doesn't want his gospel treated that way. Nor can we measure the hostility, the backlash against believers, when the hardened person may, as the text concludes, turn on you and tear you to pieces. Do not rebuke a mocker, Proverbs says, or he will hate you. You're not going to leave him neutral. You're not going to leave the hardened person who doesn't believe the gospel in a neutral place if you keep sharing it with him or her. And this, of course, if it needs to be said, does not mean we don't vigorously preach the gospel. The whole New Testament teaches otherwise. But it does mean that we need to know or we need to acquire the wisdom, the discernment, the judgment... To know when to stop. Or perhaps in some cases not to start. Jesus did this. When he said, we're shaking our dust off the feet of this town. We're going to the next town. Paul did it on a couple occasions. When he said to the Jews, because you've hardened yourself, I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He didn't say, hey, let me try a few dozen more times with you guys. He tried a few times. He was there a while. He left. So you need to know when to shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Now, this is hard for some, but I can put this another way. You have to learn to let the, re- the word who was rejected be rejected. The gospel we preach has at its center a rejected word, a crucified word, a scandalous word, Let it be crucified. Leave it alone. Let it be rejected. That's okay. We cannot coerce or manipulate others for something which in our case has been freely given. This should be a great liberation to us. We cannot coerce or manipulate others which we confess, in our case, has been freely given. We are not the Holy Spirit. And attempting to be the Holy Spirit can be noble, but it often leads, can sound noble, but it often leads to the truth, right? Being profaned, right? The hardened get confirmed in their hardness. We've all witnessed these situations, right? You're watching some Christian talk to a third party and you're thinking they really should stop. The person's not interested. It's clear that the person is telling them no, The person is sending 50,000 body language signals that they've had enough of this and the Christian person keeps going and going and going. So they get confirmed in their hardness and the church and the gospel end up being despised. This is a cost which is unseen, but it's real. Augustine puts it this way. I think this is a marvelous way to put it. He says, it's better to leave one to search for what is concealed than to make them despise what is revealed. So this is a passage which calls us to give up assuming the bench, the role of judge. It calls us to forsake hypocrisy and it calls us to forsake the ignorance of our own condition. Jesus is seeking repentant and gentle and merciful evaluators, discerners, judgers, helpers of fellow sinners in the body, willing to get underneath and carry. And as those who have chosen this way, the way of the gospel, it's a text which calls us to share that holy treasure, but to share it with discernment, like with judgment, Knowing that the one who takes the plank out of our eyes is the one who can open the eyes of the hostile so they can see the light of the holy treasure of the gospel. Amen.